and welcome to the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week, the weekly podcast of the MacGyver Institute. Whether it's interviewing the newsmakers of the day, reporting on the truly important stories that you just won't see in the mainstream media, or bringing you the latest cloak and dagger capital intrigue, the MacGyver Report is here to keep you up to speed on all things Wisconsin. From our palatial offices right here on Madison's Capitol Square, we bring you the stories that really matter to you, the taxpayer, and give you our incredibly expert analysis and unfaltering insight that you can only get, or so we hope, from Team MacGyver. And now, fueled by wife shame for having introduced my small children to my boyhood favorite movie, (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark, Sleeping on the couch. <laughs> I am John Stossel, otherwise known as Matt Kittle, investigative reporter for the MacGyver Institute, MacGyver News Service, and I'm joined by our crack team of analysts and investigators. Well, uh, Ola Lasowski is not with us today, so we could probably put that in singular tense. But <laughs> anyway, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm Bill Osmolsky, MacGyver News Director, and first of all, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's rated PG. I know. It was rated PG in 1981, how the times have changed. But when a snake crawls out of a corpse's mouth, I suppose <laughs> that, the wife can be a little that, upset That image with the is dad. still burned yeah. into my, my memory from when I was a little boy and saw that movie. It's I was not, subjected to far worse as a kid than a snake. You know, I actually, at first, I thought you said Sorry. you were going to say that you were subjected to Fargo <laughs> as a kid, which would certainly explain a lot that about was, that, that was who not you rated are. PG. That was not rated well, you, hang on. He's got to introduce himself. That's right. Oh, who is this guy yeah. who watched Fargo as a small I'm, I'm Chris Rochester, communications director. Uh, and if you're listening on our website, we thank you very much from the bottom of our of our cold and <laughs> charred hearts. <laughs> <laughs> from having been exposed to these kinds of movies as but, children. Uh, you should definitely go to one of the links to either Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Google Play, uh, or iTunes and subscribe to us on one of those services so you get notified every time you get one of those little red circles with a one or a two or whatever on your phone uh, so you get notified every time we post a new rep- MacGyver report. Don't live in ignorance. Be informed. That's the motto of this fine and established MacGyver Report Wisconsin this week. I've never heard that motto before, so I'm glad we recorded it so I could write it out later. <laughs> it's very short. I think we, I think, <laughs> we could all, I think we could all, what was it again, by the way? Don't live <laughs> in well, ignorance. Don't live in ignorance. Well, that's kind of like along the lines of democracy dies in darkness. Ah, right? very <laughs> Profound. Yes, thank you, uh, I, Justice I, Brandeis. When you were talking about the uh, the wife shaming, I thought you were going to talk about you, you dra- dragged your kids to that mo- new Bruce Willis movie. Death Wish, the remake of the Charles Bronson one? You know, I might as well have, as I I had forgotten just how violent (laughs) Indiana Jones' Raiders of the Lost Ark was. But as I told my wife, now I'm not kidding you. At one point, my five-year-old daughter turned to my wife and said, this is not a movie for children. (laughs) And and my son, my 10-year-old son is loving this. And my wife is looking at me with those eyes like, you are going to sleep on the couch for a long time. And I said, at the end of the movie, of course, and I'm feeling this pressure and this tension, and I say to the entire room, my children who are looking at their dad for guidance, I said, that movie was awesome. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. You know, backing up, you know, your, your wife, you know, throwing all the blame on you. 
Has she never seen Indiana Jones she, and Raiders of the Lost Ark? She did see it. She, well, she, so didn't, she, she didn't remember. Well, it had you, been a you've long got the time. same cop out there. Okay. <laughs> well, I will take it because yeah. <laughs> I'm the, ki- the king of the cop out. <laughs> All right. So, moving on to actual, you know, serious mm. stuff. Even though Indiana Jones is, you know, a very important topic that should be addressed whenever possible. Indeed. And speaking of horrifying things, <laughs> the Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> there are some horrifying things at the Capitol that would give Indiana Jones and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark a run for its money. Fortunately, things at the Capitol slowed down last week. But, you know, there's still plenty of news that just never ends here in Wisconsin. And you were at the uh, what used to be the Government Accountability Board, but it was mm-hmm. uh, it's now the Wisconsin Ethics Commission, at least the one. Or you went to the Elections Commission last week. Both, actually. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of like that closing scene in Indiana Jones where you have to close your eyes and don't... <laughs> <laughs> well, I could make a few uh, you, you, um, allusions here, but that uh, that could be problematic, I know. Yeah, all right. So anyway, uh, getting back to my original script where I uh-huh. talk about how you're constantly dogging these poor bureaucrats, one of them has finally had enough and succumbed. Yeah, finally. Michael Haas, of course, who was uh, a key player in the abusive and unconstitutional John Doe investigation for the aforementioned Government Accountability Board, the GAB, although he has protested throughout this entire process that he had very limited, you know, um, involvement in the John Doe. And as we have reported at MacGyver, and I guess we'll repeat this momentarily, uh, there are all kinds of information, including emails, that show that he was very much involved from the beginning. But that aside, um, obviously Republicans in the Senate and in the legislature have lost a good deal of faith of these bureaucrats from the Government Accountability Board that were held over after the state legislature in 2015 said enough is enough. Uh, we found out that these guys were involved in abusive, this abusive investigation with the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office, uh, that they turned innocent citizens' lives upside down. And we found out recently, of course, that now they've been tracking lawmakers, too, and collecting their personal emails and, and holding that information in folders titled Opposition Research. It doesn't get more partisan than that for the so-called nonpartisan bureaucracy. Michael Haas was a holdover from that, and he was made the interim administrator of the new Elections Commission. Uh, Scott Fitzgerald, the majority leader for the Senate, for a a long time ago, 18, 19 months ago, said this is short term. Um, he does not have the support from the Senate in a confirmation vote. That's what has to happen. Your administrators have to go through a Senate confirmation vote. That's part of the Constitution, mm-hmm. by the way. You know, this right of counsel, advice and counsel. And, uh, But a funny thing happened on the way to the Constitution. (laughs) A funny thing happened after a Senate vote. It wasn't so funny. It was basically uh, a constitutional crisis. Well, yeah, that's making him our permanent interim administrator. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened because the Senate, the Republicans, in a party-line vote, of course the Democrats not seeing the John Doe and all of the many abuses that occurred in it against their political enemies as a real problem, <laughs> wanted to keep Michael Haas in place. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's, he's our guy. He's <laughs> our guy. Why would you not? Why would you want to get rid of your guy? So the Senate 
in uh, February voted to reject his confirmation, to not confirm Michael Haas, and also uh, Brian Bell, who was the interim administrator, same sort of situation, worked over at the GAB before, of the Ethics Commission created uh, after the GAB disbanded in Basically, basically to say, we're, we're the uh, representatives of the people of Wisconsin, and you're fired. That is exactly <laughs> right, and I think that's a very good point that we've tried to bring up along the way that apparently the Elections Commission and Democrats don't want to listen to. The elections have consequences. The majority in the Senate, the Senate is is led by Republicans. Republicans were targeted. Conservatives were targeted. Every, just about every right of center group in the state was targeted in this awful John Doe investigation. The Senate has the right and the responsibility to confirm or to deny uh, administrators in executive posts. Well, notice how like the left is willing to fight and die on every single hill. Yeah. I mean, this is a this should have been very non-controversial, at least a vote part. This guy's the interim. We don't like him. Pick someone else. I mean, this thing is stretched on for weeks until you know. Fortunately, the Republicans have stuck to their guns on it, and he finally just gave up. But I mean. This should have been almost a complete non-issue. Open and close, move on to the next thing. You bet. And that's exactly what happened. Instead of uh, supporting the Senate's decision, whether whether you agreed with the Senate's decision or not, supporting the Constitution, I think is a better way of saying it. The Senate decided the Elections Commission, with a very partisan um, Democrat at the helm, led a what I called a hashtag resistance movement. Resistance against, against, Yes, and Michael Haas did the same thing. Well, here's what happened. For weeks, they decided they were going to keep him on as in, uh, they could name him as interim administrator and thwart and thumb their nose at the Senate. Well, the state of Wisconsin, however, said, no, we will follow the will of the Senate, the will of the people, and we have bumped Mr. Haas out of that leadership position into a general counsel position. By the way, you took a $30,000 pay cut. Well, uh, earlier... Uh, it's very say, selfless of him. <laughs> and that was the whole thing. This guy was trying to, you know, with the help of his partners over at the mainstream media, you know, he's painting himself as this martyr to this witch hunt, you know, describing these sorts of things as, you know, as a witch hunter, a vendetta by the Republicans, when really the, the, the ironic thing is how many conservatives had their homes raided in a political witch hunt that he was a part of. So, you know, he paints himself as this victim when... First and foremost, this is an economic concern for him. He took a big hit. Mm -hmm. He's not being paid the same. He's not supposed to be in that position. And the Senate was eventually and did have the authority within 45 days to appoint their own successor. The Elections Commission and Haas saw the writing on the wall. He has finally said enough is enough. He did not go quietly into that good night. He made his big open public letter, you know, a diatribe against the Republican Senate and uh, the people who, you know, he, he sees as his tormentors, uh, the people, very same people that he, he and his uh, bureaucrats tormented for years. But he will go... Uh, and he will be replaced by the assistant inter assistant administrator, if you will, for the time being while they conduct a national search. So trying to set things right over at the uh, Wisconsin 
Elections Commission. It's going to take a lot more than Michael Haas stepping down. But yes, this is a movement, at least, that honors the Constitution, finally. (laughs) So I know I'm not the only one who feels like the world is completely out of whack these days. And there are a number of lawmakers who are trying to reestablish some sort of balance with our criminal justice system. Now, too often the law seems excessively harsh when it should be lenient and too lenient when it needs to get tough. Senator Leah Vukmir stopped by last week to talk about her efforts to get tough on carjackers. I'm concerned about the victims. And regardless of what's causing these people to do this, one thing I do know is they don't have um, a sense that anything serious is going to happen to them as a result of their crimes. And so that's why when we looked at what was going on with carjacking, um, there was a class for um, being armed with a gun or a weapon and trying to carjack. But there isn't one to just remove a person by force without a weapon. There was no class for that. The other class is for an unattended car, and you just go and you steal the car. So we felt that it was important to have that next step up from just an unattended uh, theft of an an automobile and by force, because we're seeing this happening over and over again. I think many of you have seen now because people... Snapchat and they videotape everything. I think the one that astounds me the most was in the city of Milwaukee where the woman got out of her car and jumped right on top of the dashboard. And and so, again, these perpetrators are getting away with a slap on the wrist. And we felt it was important that they um, have some consequences for it. So the, the class of crime has increased. It Bill creates a distinction between stealing a vehicle that is unattended and forcefully removing someone from their vehicle. The second part of the bill that's very important too is that it increases the penalties for repeat offenders. Getting back to my original premise that we need to be dealing with these repeat violent offenders. So under current law, a repeat offense has the same penalty as the first offense. And so that answers your question. Why is this continuing? Because it makes no difference to them. Yeah, and so just just to summarize, so currently, until you pull out a gun during a carjacking, it's no different than just taking a car without permission as far as the law is concerned. Correct. Okay. And so this will at least give the, the obviously you can never, you, you can't exactly uh, compel district's attorney to, uh, to use these tools, but you are giving them the tools now exactly. to address these problems. And, you know, we've talked about this. Is it going to be a cure-all? No. But... Those who do commit these crimes need to be held accountable, and we feel that this is a step in that direction. And that bill passed both chambers, and the, govern- and the governor is uh, scheduled to be signing it pretty soon here. Always great when, you know, it's, it's nice to talk to Leah. She, she's tough, but she's also very nice to talk to. And uh, it's pretty cool just to have her sit down at the mics here in the studio and just kind of have a conversation like that. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and we always have conversations about, extremely important things you know uh senator vukmir led the fight unfortunately that died in the legislature once again at the very least got a hearing but she led the fight on minimum markup for instance now she's leading a a fight on a crime problem that is of epidemic proportion in milwaukee and if milwaukee ever truly wants to try to bill itself as a go-to city whether that be for 
general tourism or a democratic convention. They're going to need more than a trolley to make it an inviting city. The first thing they can do is stop repeat offenders stealing people's cars. I was going to say the great thing about the trolley is if you're a tourist and and, and you have a trolley instead of a car, you don't have to worry about getting out of your car and have it immediately stolen. Yeah, there's no no such thing. Maybe. I'm wondering when the first trolley jack is going to (laughs) occur. Now, you know, just a. To clarify, you know, because it does seem kind of insane, is in Wisconsin law, there is taking a car without permission, and then all of the escalation continues to be taking a car without permission up to grabbing someone out of their car, throwing them in the street, and taking their car continues to be taking a car without permission. The next crime up on the scale is so car, you know, stealing a car with, right. uh, at gunpoint. Yeah. So, so it, this is fixing that problem. It, 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 this reminds me of the, you know, that the game Grand Theft Auto where you can steal somebody's car, you can throw them out of the car and drive off and and that's not enough to get the attention of the police. <laughs> Except this is real, you know, it's always sounds very absurd, but this is almost like the real thing and they can't even chase you. Well, so that game was actually pretty realistic. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to Grand when it, maybe they should set the next version of the game in Milwaukee. Yeah. Well, I think maybe perhaps well, there's some inspiration for carjacking through a Grand Theft Auto and certainly the system of laws in place. Um, well, surrounded. It's a good thing they're making some progress on it. So yeah, thanks so, to Vukmir for yeah, that. Yeah, but before you start getting carried away thinking the world is starting to make sense, yeah. Chris, I know that you've been looking into congressional candidate Randy Bryce's economic development plan. And Chris, please tell us about this utopian vision. Uh, I'm not so sure it's an economic development plan, more of a copy-paste job off of the Bernie Sanders website. Uh-huh. Uh, so people have been following this. So this is uh, Bernie uh, – this is Ra- – I just made a Freudian slip there. This is <laughs> this is uh, Randy Bryce. Six he, in one hand, half a dozen on the other. <laughs> well, you know, he's running in a Democratic primary uh, before he can get to the actual general election against Paul Speaker Paul Ryan, but – um, he is the guy who likes to milk his persona that he's built uh, as like an iron worker, a guy with a mustache, like your every man, you know, a, a hard work and lunch pail type of guy. Uh, to me, this it reminds me a lot. His persona reminds me a lot of a professional wrestler. <laughs> you have a, you know, you might be somebody completely different. You know, you might be more of like an accountant type of guy. But when you get into the ring, you know, you're the Rock or you're Stone Cold or, oh, the or Iron Sheik or you're the Iron Sheik. You're the Iron Worker. You, you remember know? the Iron Sheik? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used right. to tell you know, the, the, the guy, the the. So we got the Iron Stash. So the Iron the Stash iron taking stash. on Hulk Hogan. Iron the Iron Stash. That's actually his Twitter hashtag. If you want to creep on him and look, you know, he, he hashtags about tax scam, hashtag Medicare for all. Um, and what we looked at was just how much does all, do all these plans that he has cost? So he basically, uh, at the uh, at a meeting of the machinist union, endorsed the Bernie Sanders platform. You know, everything from a $15 an hour minimum wage, a whole slate of new regulations on employers, SOPs to unions, uh, you know, basically everything from the far left progressive manifesto that Bernie Sanders uh, touts, that that costs about $18 trillion over 10 years. Oh, pocket change. Yeah, you know, give or take a couple, give or take a couple of uh, annual, you know, federal budgets. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) $3.7 trillion. Um, But, you know, that's, that's, that's really nothing compared to the big kahuna, what he wants to do. He's supporting this uh, thing called uh, Medicare for all, which, you Mm. know, 
it, they, they, they like to tout this Medicare for all because generally Medicare gets pretty good poll numbers. So, hey, why not let everyone have access to it? It's basically single payer health care where the government takes over the entire health care system. That's which is want. the that's the one hundred year goal that progressives have had and yeah. they had a stab at it with Obamacare and it turned out to be a disaster and uh, so Yeah, and they're trying, you know, in Wisconsin we've talked about, you know, the plans for, you know, if you can't get Medicare for all at the federal level, let's get Medicaid for all at the Wisconsin level. Yeah, but, you know. it's just another uh, promise that they're trying to make that they, they really have no idea how to how to pay for it. And that, that was a really famous moment. I actually want to play something. I want to play with our new sound, our, our switchboard here. And, uh, you know, this is CNN taking Bryce to task for having absolutely no clue how he's going to how he's going to pay for this this Medicare for all plan. In Congress right now, you want to go even further than Obamacare. You're for single payer. You're for basically sure. universal health care. You know, and there's analysis from a group called the Urban Institute, which we haven't been able to double check. But it says, you know, if you, Bernie Sanders, you look at his plan for universal coverage that he ran on during the primary, you know, it could cost $32 trillion over 10 years. Even if it's half that, that's a ton of money. How do you propose paying for it? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of people that are getting away with not paying their fair share in taxes right now. Um, and they benefit you, you the raise, most you from raise society. You want to raise $32 trillion in taxes? Well, I'm, I'm not saying that, that we have to look at ways to um, just increase complete costs. There's, there's a lot of things that uh, we can look at as far as making things cost effective. Um, but again, there's a lot of people that are not paying what, you know, their fair share of, of taxes. There's corporations yeah. getting away with, with a lot. Th that would be quite a tax hike. I mean, that's an astonishing number, $32 trillion over. Okay, so <laughs> well, that would nobody, be astonishing. Yeah, well, fortunately, nobody listen, watches CNN anymore, so you might, <laughs> might be okay with that. Well, uh, I don't know. Back then, maybe they had a little bit better numbers, but at least John Berman, and, and you know, they, they called him to task and said, you really want to raise taxes by $32 trillion? <laughs> and he, he gives out this ridiculous answer about, uh, you know, well, there's a lot of rich people who get away with not paying their fair share. And then he goes into some stumbling <laughs> thing about it sounded like finding efficiencies well, or cost reductions elsewhere. It's like, this is with a T, Bryce, with a T, 32. Right. So that, you know, the, the point is with this this thing that we wrote up, it's it's $50 trillion is basically what his spending plans add up to over 10 years. So, um, you know, is he? It, it doesn't sound like he's really the thrifty you know, average iron worker that, you know, has to actually balance a budget. Wait, so he kind of like out crazy the liberals at CNN. Even, <laughs> <laughs> even they couldn't. Wait, hold on a minute. That's $32 trillion, pal, with a T. Well, all right. So Randy's worldview, no doubt, has been shaped by his tenure as a union steward, which apparently doesn't always bring out the best in people. Now, whereas Randy is a member of the iron workers, Matt Kittle has been looking into the UAW, which apparently has widely expanded its membership requirements and now represents everything included, including the kitchen sink. This week's <laughs> McIver's Minutes is about Josh Hare, who works in the pottery department at Kohler and is the United Auto Workers' number one draft pick. This is the McIver News Minutes. Here's Matt Kittle. Big labor is up to its old tricks, at least at the Kohler Company plant. Josh Hare tells MacGyver News that he has been repeatedly harassed by union leadership for not joining the UAW Local 833. 
The subtle intimidation has steadily grown. Harris said the UAW president told him that the union doesn't like it when people don't join and that they'd hate to see anything bad happen to Hare. The union president acknowledges he had a conversation with Hare about the benefits of union membership, but says he didn't threaten him. Hare recently found a sign above the punch clock personally calling him out for refusing to join the union. Newsflash for UAW Local 833, Wisconsin is a right-to-work state. Like it or not, and big labor doesn't, workers like Hare who find no value in unions don't have to join. Hare said his experience has only confirmed why he is so thankful not to be in a union. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on to MacGyverInstitute.com. Yes, indeed. And to hear the MacGyver News Minute, you can listen in to News Talk 1130 WISN out of Milwaukee on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Runs three times a week, uh, 8 o'clock hour, 11 o'clock hour, and the 2 o'clock hour. And just a quick point on Josh Harris' struggles. You know, uh, he's a pretty, 24 years old, he's a pretty grounded guy. He seems like it to me, and I've done a few interviews with him now. And some of this stuff he laughs at, you know, like, oh, the big bully. This is such, and, you know, he talks about it like it's a high school, you know. It just right. feels like a high school kind of social setting there with some of these folks in the union. And he's got thick skin, but he said, you know, there are a lot of people who didn't want to join the union, didn't want to pay union dues, but they were harassed and harassed and uh, intimidated and pressured, and they finally gave in. And isn't that as every much a violation of uh, someone's rights, their constitutional rights, their First Amendment rights, to choose who they want to associate with and who they do not, than any of the the sort of abuses that we've seen over the years uh, from government or from corporations or whoever is, you know, they're pointing the finger at this. You know, this is a constitutional issue for these folks. I think I think there's a I, I do like the generational aspect to it where the you know the I don't the I don't know how old these union bosses are, but they have this old you know 1960s 1970s mentality that they're in charge around here and they're gonna carry the big stick and this this 24 year old. Uh, you know, millennial says this is this is a joke. These guys are this is immature, ridiculous way to run a, a, a you know a, an employment relationship, and he doesn't have any interest in it. But the you know it's just such an outdated way of doing things that these old that the union bosses have. And uh, what's amazes me, interests me, is how people my age, uh, you know, twenty, thirty, maybe up to forty. They have, they're just more individual. They're not into the union thing. Well, it's a matter of value, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, it's, it's, any, it's like a, when we buy a car, when we buy a cable TV package versus a satellite package or vice versa. What is going to give us the most value? And Josh Hare, like so many folks, young and old, uh, but you're right. I think a, a lot more of the, the millennial age is saying, listen, I'm, I'm not getting any value out of this organization, and I don't want my money going to support causes and candidates I don't support. Yeah, I, I mean, we, we could talk all day, too, just about how outdated the union's uh, business model is, you know, especially in terms of millennials, you know, who, first of all, if you're worth more than what the union can get you, you aren't going to want to be a member. And secondly, 
if you're worth less, you're going to want what the union can do for you, but for free. Right. You know, kind of like <laughs> what the internet has done. It's like, why do I want to pay to see a movie? I should That's be able right. to stream it for free. Well, yeah. why should I have to pay for your union membership? You should just give it to me for free, and right? And that's what millennials have learned. <laughs> that that entitlement has just gone amok. That's right. But that said, why would you, just from, from my point of view, why would you want to be involved in an organization that compels you to be involved in the organization? I mean, yeah. it's... It's the old comedy line that's been borrowed by everybody from Woody Allen on up, <laughs> yeah. and that is, um, it's the reverse of why would I want to be a in member. or a member of an organization that would have me for a member? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the reverse of that. Well, I wish I could tell you that that's all we have for big labor antics this week. I wish I could tell you that. No, oh, it was it was it was but, a yeah, strange week. Well, if, if I did tell you that, though, you might never know about all the the, the lawsuits unions continue to file against Act Ten. Let's start with uh, the good news, Matt. I understand the Supreme Court just slapped down another one of these ridiculous challenges. Yeah, Bill, this was a smackdown indeed. Uh, last week, the state Supreme Court came out with a ruling. Now. In effect, it will mean nothing, and I'll explain that in terms of, uh, you know, the actualization. I'll explain that in a moment. But unions uh, sued the state of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Employment um, Relations Commission, back in 2014, 2015, basically under the argument that they should not have to file a petition to be named on a ballot for certification or recertification as the union that represents the employees at the state level. So the, the, the workers should not get a chance to decide whether... They want to be in the union or not? No, the no. Actually, it's 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 more. Again, yeah. you know, it's supposed to be about the 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 employees. It's supposed to be about yeah. the constituency. It's about the union. The union says um, we we're already in many cases the union of record. We're the only one who's representing them anyway. Uh, but that's like saying you know a, a race in a senate district or an assembly district will always be uncontested. There is always the possibility that another union might want to be on the ballot to represent the employees. This is one of those examples, again, where unions just say, well, it's always been this way. They just take it for granted. There is no competition. We're the only game in town. We shouldn't have to file a petition. The argument from work from the Wisconsin um, Employment Relations Commission is a good one, and it's this. Why would... a the union not have to follow the same rules that a candidate has to. And in this case, it was the union that decided eventually they were going to file a petition, but they did it after the filing deadline. And when they did that, then their argument suddenly became, we shouldn't have to file a petition at all. And that's just like saying that a candidate running for election doesn't have to get the signatures on a petition and file that in a timely fashion. Well, yeah, what about like these guys that have been around for decades? You know, why should they have to file petitions every election? That's the assumption. (laughs) There's a lot of assumption built in, and it's the same thing as a voter, okay? You have the right to file an absentee ballot, for instance, and you have a window of opportunity to do that. Or if you're failing to do that, you can go to the polls on election day. If you go to the polls at 1030 at night and expect to be able to vote, 
you have forfeited your opportunity to vote. And I don't think anybody would disagree with, well, I should <laughs> But we typically in a civilized... A reasonable person. A reasonable person would say, yes, there are rules and you have to follow them. The unions decided they didn't have to follow the rules. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you do. And here's why. And your arguments are bogus and they're silly. Uh, and so they ruled in favor of the Wisconsin uh, Employment Relations Commission, although in the interim over the last couple of years, the union continue, was able to continue to represent the employees, and then the next year they actually followed the rules, so they were within. Hmm. You know, So this is yet another example of a frivolous lawsuit in a long wave of frivolous lawsuits to try to knock down Act 10, and at every turn... And this is the latest the Supreme Court has upheld the constitutionality. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, you know, since we're dealing with insane people, we're going to probably have to go through all this yet again with almost certainly the same results. <laughs> now, Chris. Groundhog's Day. Yes. Chris, please no. tell us about the newest constitutional <clears throat> challenge to Act 10. Well, so, uh, yeah, we kind of thought this was over in 2014 when uh, the, the uh, Seventh Circuit, I think it was the Seventh Circuit and the state Supreme Court said, no, Act 10 is constitutional. Uh, but you can't expect the unions to just give up. The uh, operating engineers, uh, local 139 and 420, uh, filed a lawsuit, uh, another lawsuit against Act 10. This time they're using the pretense of the Janus versus AFSCME case, which is in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and that's really all it is, is a pretense. They have some flimsy legal argument that they, they say if... if uh, the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of Mark Janus in that case, uh, and says that agency fees are unconstitutional. Then that means that Act 10 is also unconstitutional, based on some really flimsy legal theory. And so they're, t- they're you know, they they were given some opportunity to f- sue again, and sue again is exactly what they did. Um, you know, this is another one of those lawsuits that's going to, it might waste a whole lot of time, cost a whole lot of money, maybe, maybe make the unions feel good that they're doing something to try to stay relevant, but it'll get, it'll get struck down just like it's been in the past. Well, I know this guy Janice is, you know, he's suing because he doesn't like the idea of his, you know, dues money going towards political causes that he disagrees with. But, you know, if, even if you agreed with the political causes of the union, I would personally object to them just Dump, throwing my money away on all these ridiculous lawsuits. I mean, this is really, you know, draining what's left of their of their treasuries. You and know? that's the thing. And, and this is also another example of, of what could be considered a preemptive lawsuit. Yeah. The U.S. Supreme Court hasn't ruled in Janus yet. Yeah. Now, well, they're, we're spending, they're spending money on the lawsuit already, whether or not they're right. able to... <laughs> but could the court come back, I guess, and that's a question for sharper legal minds than mine, but could the court come back and say... This isn't a controversy yet. Until we rule, get out of here. <laughs> but no, these sorts of silly, frivolous lawsuits continue to march on. Yeah, but keep the, on tying up the court system too. Yeah. But some of these are, are, you know, are really important. The Janus case itself uh, is has been called one of the most potentially one of the most important legal or labor relations cases in American legal history. Um, you know, if, if, if the Supreme Court strikes down agency fee, you know, agency fees to unions, we'll see, I think, throughout the country a little bit of what happened after Act 10 in Wisconsin, where workers are actually given the freedom to choose whether they want to pay the, and there the unions. And there it is. And, and that's be. what scares the living hell out of <laughs> that, unions. That's right. That, that's the, that they would have to compete. And that's, that's we, we talk around these issues all the time, but that's the bottom line. 
recertification votes or no longer the ability to just compulsively uh, uh, force union dues. Now you have to compete. You have to say, this is why this service is valuable to you, the consumer. That's that's the thread that goes through not only a lot of the stories we're talking about today, but it, it really runs throughout the whole political left, I think, is coercion. And in this case, you know, money is power, especially in politics. Yeah. And there is so much money. There are uh, there are millions of empl- of government workers in 22 different states that are forced to pay these agency fees against their will, and that money is used almost exclusively on the left to elect Democrats to office. If that money is no longer available, that's a huge political problem, and it's also a problem that these unions who are, like we mentioned in the previous thing about uh, Josh Hare, they're stuck in the 60s, they're stuck in the 70s with these outdated mentalities of, you know, we're going to put your name above the punch clock and you better, we're going to explain the the benefits of joining the union. Yeah. And, you know, you, you better, you better, uh, you know. You better understand. You, you better benefits. come with your card. <laughs> right. And, that, you know, that mentality just isn't going to keep working. And so they're going to have to, uh, I, I think you, agency fees are a thing of the past once the Supreme Court rules. And the, the unions are really going to have to do some work instead of just not lift a finger to get all the money pouring into their into their bank accounts. Yeah. All right. So not exactly union related, but it still involves liberals in court. Eric Holder is suing Scott Walker for not holding special elections for two open seats. Now, Chris, first of all, whose seats are open? Well, the seats are uh, Keith Ripp, uh, who uh, was an assembly representative from District 42. He's out of Lodi. So he's got a pretty big district going from kind of uh, north north of Dane County, stretching you know northeast across the state. Uh, and then Frank Lassay from the 1st State Senate District both went to work for the Walker administration. Uh, so those are, uh, you know, I think the, the, the RIP seat is potentially a vulnerable seat, especially if you have a, another low turnout election like Senate District 10. And uh, Frank Lassay's, I, I, I've heard questions, maybe it's, Safe, maybe it's not. Who knows? Well, but. So, so why, why does I'll, I'll tell you in a minute why why the, the Dems want there to be elections, but why does uh, Governor Walker want want just you know keep these seats open? Well, the 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 whole rationale is that the session is so short. Well, for one, these uh, these appointments were effective or resignations were effective around the first of the year, and it takes a while to you know a couple months to gear up for an election and hold an election. It costs a lot of money. Um, and so I think the governor said, look, the legislature is going to hit the road before or shortly uh, after these elections anyway. So there, we'd have all this hullabaloo over two special elections, and basically they would have nothing to do. They would be getting paid a, a, a state salary to campaign for the rest of the year and not even be in Madison. So uh, it was, a, I think, a pretty prudent decision not to, not to have a special election at all. So now I'll talk about why the left wants to have special elections. Of course. <laughs> it's all about building momentum. You know, one, when you have one special election, especially, you know, one at a time, you know, and these are happening throughout the country, the entire national apparatus can put all of its resources and efforts behind one special election. Um, we, you know, spe- That's a very good point. Yeah, That's exactly what they did in the 10th Senate District. Exa- you had people from California getting involved in that. Exactly. So you have these things marching up to the general election 
in uh, November, you're able to kind of build that momentum, build excitement, get your base all fired up, and make sure that you're, you know, dumping all of your resources behind each one of these. Now, they tried to do the exact same thing in 2012 with the recall elections. Mm -hmm. They want to have one at a time building up to Governor Walker, you know, the big tamale. Well, even the GAB just said, no, you can't do that. You got to kind of, you got to have them all, you know, at the same time. And once they have to deal with all this at, at the same time, they really don't have as much support as they want you to believe they do. So they lost, you know, most of those recall elections. It's a phony narrative. Yeah. And that's what's going on nationally right now. And this is a national campaign. Well, it's, it's run by Eric Holder. Right. Yes. Right. And, and the whole notion is you knock off low, very low turnout special elections you know, with very highly motivated voters. And now it becomes a national trend, right? Exactly. This is what's going to happen in November. Yeah, yeah that's, I that's mean, phony, and taxpayers are paying the, for the phoniness. The only time a Wisconsin assembly election would ever be national news is if, they, if there was a special election and six people showed up to vote and four of them voted Democrat. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. the, to me, there, there's three things that I find to be really ironic in this, this lawsuit. For one... Uh, a former, not even the most recent, but a, a bygone former Obama AG is running around suing governors around the country. For one, I think that's interesting, and and for one, I think that might indicate uh, that the Obama people, the organizing for action people, uh, might might think that these state Democratic parties need a little help for, from some people with a little bit of political savvy. Uh, and that's number two. Okay, they're always that you know the liberal line is always. If only everybody voted and the election turnout was was 100% of all eligible voters uh -huh. and there was no supposed disenfranchisement and, you know, then we'd, they, they, they say they'd win every election. Well, here they are desperate to have elections in these low turnout special elections. Senate District 10, I mean, it was like 12%. Right. <laughs> And uh, no, that's it was, a very good it was point. shockingly low. So if we could just get everybody to vote, except for now when we need these special elections to create a phony narrative. Now we don't want too many people to vote at all, quite frankly, because <laughs> if they did, we could lose. So and, and, and these Walker thwarted that by saying, no, they're going to we're going to have it during a higher turnout election. And then the third thing is what the, these maps that they would be campaigning in are, are aren't they rigged? To be Republican leaning, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Aren't they gerrymandered beyond recognition? So they look like they, a bunch of they, snakes in a pit. They're like long. Liberals snakes. don't need to be consistent. <laughs> <laughs> and well, yeah, I mean, these just, are the same. They just need voters to forget. Yeah, yeah. They, they, these are the same maps that they're so concerned about, and yet these are the ones they're desperate enough to sue over that they can run in them. Lots of irony baked into this cake. All right, next lawsuit. This <laughs> and this Perfect. is this one that this is our lawsuit edition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, so conservatives will actually appreciate this one. The attorneys general of Wisconsin and Texas are suing the feds over Obamacare. Now, Chris, I just called the unions insane for repeatedly filing <laughs> the same lawsuit over Act Ten. So please explain why these attorneys general are not insane. Well, this is a lawsuit we can we can believe in. Uh, <laughs> well, so yeah, Attorney General, and this kind of went under the radar last week. Uh, Attorney General Brad Schimmel and the uh, Attorney General of Texas Ken Paxton have joined together, leading uh, twenty states in suing over Obamacare. And the theory is that so we we, we have our annual or not annual our week our weekly. Uh, tax cut apocalypse. So let, let's tie that in. Mm -hmm. The apocalypse this week is that during the in the tax cut package, the tax penalty for not having health insurance, so the thing you have to pay if you're too poor to have insurance, right. uh, was repealed. 
And so this lawsuit says that going back to the Supreme Court's decision uh, back in 2012, um, the Supreme Court said that the only thing that makes Obamacare constitutional is the tax aspect. Because the Congress they has the power. They called it a tax. They tortured themselves to define the, ta- the penalty as a tax. And right. then they used the Congress's uh, power under the Constitution to lay and collect taxes as a basis for upholding the law. But they also explicitly said, absent the, that power, this is a, uh, the individual mandate is a unconstitutional uh, coercing of commercial activity by the federal government. So, I mean, it was a tortured ruling. Conservatives hated it at the time. And I think, I mean, if you, I'm no lawyer, but if I, you know, if but you, you look. you play one on TV. But I play one on TV. I mean, <laughs> I can use big words um, sometimes. As long as you write them down. First. As long as I write them down and look them up, you know. Uh, and um, put a pronunciation key by it. You know, I'm no lawyer, but th- this sounds like it has a, you know, just look at the Supreme Court's own words from back in the Sebelius case in 2012. It sounds like this could be a successful lawsuit. And the thing is that's most interesting, we talk about Wisconsin being a leader in all these different reforms. We're a leader in this. The the solicitor uh, solicitor general of Wisconsin is the the one who found the according to Brad Schimmel, who was on Vicky McKenna's show, is the one who found this legal rationale and said, "Look, we have an opportunity here." So Wisconsin's really the leader on this, and this this really could this really could gut Obamacare. It is a very interesting take on it, and you now have this, which Congress legally enacted, constitutionally enacted, as is in their power. Uh, and so now that takes away the whole rationale, the whole reasoning that Obamacare, the Affordable yeah. Care Act, could exist to begin with. So this is, you know, just to kind of clarify, so this is a new lawsuit based off of, you know, a changing situation. It's not just like what the right. unions are doing where right. we're going to sue because this isn't We're going to find the latest right. excuse. Well, I mean, they always, every single one of their lawsuits is essentially, uh, this is uh, violating our right to free assembly. Yeah. This, this is actually an entirely new issue that has just it's, emerged. It's like turning the bingo wheel and getting a new ball out, and the ball has a different excuse for why they're why they're going to file a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. This this is actually based on legislation passed by Congress. And the the really important thing I think is is to to understand for one back in 2012, the Supreme Court I think felt like they had to come up with an excuse for the constitutionality of the individual mandate, which became that it was a tax, because there's not a thing called a severability clause in Obamacare. And so why would it matter now that they, they could overturn, without the tax as the excuse, the thing propping up Obamacare, why would that matter now? Well, there's no severability clause. There's no more excuse for Obamacare. There's no constitutional basis for it. And they upheld it. They, they had to bend over backwards to uphold the individual mandate, because without it, the entire law unravels because there's not a severability clause. But this is actually playing bingo with the bingo balls. <laughs> the the union's constant wave, the, the latest lawsuit after lawsuit is based on playing bingo with the letters F and P. <laughs> yeah. They don't exist in the game of yeah. bingo. They don't exist in the right. law in precedent, but yet they're still going to try to play uh, a new game. Right. So, and, but I just wanted to say, you know, the, on the severability thing, one last thing was if the Supreme Court says that, okay, the tax is gone, the individual mandate is unconstitutional, there's no severability clause, which means all the dominoes fall. 
So this is this is big. It's a big yeah. case. Well, so at we'll this, be watching. Yeah. So at this point in the podcast, you're probably thinking the struggle between the left and the right will never end. Well, Chris got a chance to interview Guy Benson for our bonus podcast. That was the, really cool. Yeah, the MacGyver Report Extra. And, uh, you know, Benson will be one of the first to tell you that our side's winning. And here's an excerpt to kind of build your spirits back up. How badly have Democrats stepped on a rake when they decided to go whole hog on the Armageddon and Crumbs talking points? Yeah, well, the Armageddon talking point was nonsense, but they were they were pretending as if this was going to be just a catastrophic law for the American people. And in fact, it's it's the opposite of that. It's working well and it's gained 26 points in popularity in the New York Times polling just since December. And I think part of the reason that it is that the perception is turning around is people are seeing the reality around them as opposed to the overheated rhetoric. And the overheated rhetoric actually helps the Republican cause, helps the tax reform cause at this point, because Democrats drove tax reforms numbers down into the 30s with their scare tactics. And when you when you're expecting that you might die and what you end up with is uh, being alive and a thousand dollars, that seems like a pretty great deal. Um, and, and for Democrats to turn around from Frankenstein, Armageddon, end of the world, massive attack on the middle class to saying, well, OK, maybe things are going well and people are getting bonuses and new benefits and businesses are expanding and they're raising wages and people's paychecks are getting bigger because of the tax cuts. But it's not really all that much. It's just crumbs. That is an admission that the previous demagoguery and scare tactics were lies. And it's also an elite out of touch aloofness uh, where, you know, a multimillionaire like Nancy Pelosi sneering about crumbs that are, you know, thousands, you know, a thousand plus dollars for average families. Um, that's not a good look. So my hope is that Republicans will keep pounding on this, will keep urging people to check their pay stubs, to look at their take home pay now versus last month in December and draw a direct line of credit, crediting, crediting the Republicans for voting yes and keeping in mind that every single Democrat voted no on this law while making absurdly incorrect predictions about it that have been um, debunked in real time. And the Republican arguments have been vindicated in real time. So that was really cool to have Guy Benson in. This is the second time we've had him on the podcast, and uh, I suggested he come back during the summer. Uh, he's not a stranger to cold weather. He's, you know, northern Illinois, but uh, hopefully he does that because it's getting to be like a regular thing now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so we do this this MacIver Extra, MacIver Podcast Extra, where we'll do a special interview with someone like Guy Benson. Uh, we also have a special one coming up this week with somebody else. We'll, we'll uh, with with Leah. We talked about that. Yeah. Uh, so look for that every Thursday on uh, uh, on all of our uh, all of our channels. And again, this is an opportunity you can uh, subscribe to the MacIver Institute on, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. And follow us on Twitter. We'll keep you constantly updated. So now that everyone's feeling inspired from Guy Benson's words of wisdom, let's head back to Madison. No, this isn't going to no, be a letdown. Yeah, not oh. going to be a letdown. Talk Matt, about a wet blanket. Yeah, that I know. Was... Well, Matt Kittle has been compiling all the great legislation that's passed out of the Assembly. That means good things for Wisconsin taxpayers and lovers of liberty. Matt, what do you have for us? Well, this is good. And this is bad. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't give you a full rosy picture. Now, there was some very, very good liberty 
legislation, limited government legislation, legislation that puts the taxpayer first that came out of this, albeit brief, winter session. Um, and I want to really highlight those things. But there were some things that were really good pieces of legislation that made it into the process but just died another painful death at the doors of uh, the Assembly or the uh, Senate. But some of the things that I think will have huge lasting impact, things like honest budgeting, right? The whole notion that agencies and, and government departments in this state need to be honest about their budgeting, and there needs to be a review about that. And it can't start at how much they've added on to the budget. It has to start when that initiative or that program begin. Let's take a look at how much we've added to it. Is that addition necessary? That was a Dave Craig bill, a Senator Dave Craig, well, Republican town of Vermont. Real, real quick, the beautiful yeah. thing about that is anyone that's ever, you know, had any involvement in government will tell you, once it gets near the end of the fiscal year, people get crazy. They, they throw the Uline catalogs around. Hey, what can we spend this money on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, because if we don't spend it, then our budget next year will be smaller. So this will, you know, not only readdress what we really need to be budgeting for these departments, but it might also cut down on that, you know, end of the fiscal year crazy waste that goes on, too. Right. And if you need it and you can defend it, then okay, it'll be in the budget. If you can't, it shouldn't be there. And that's where the taxpayers once again regain some power at the table. Civil asset forfeiture is another bill by uh, Senator Dave Craig that I think... Oh, I love this This one. was a big win. <laughs> big, big, very big, big liberty. I mean, key liberty win. And this... And I... I I'm just so passionate about this one. I want to talk about this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is one it. of those bills where it's like every single Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, every single person in the state should have been completely behind this bill. All it says is if you get arrested for a crime, if you get arrested by the cops and they seize a bunch of your property as evidence, if you are innocent of that crime, they have to give you your stuff back. Yes. Under, and they can't sell it. Yes. Under the law that has been in place for pretty much forever, they've been able to just arrest you, take your stuff as evidence, and then sell it. Mm -hmm. And if you get proved innocent by the courts, they've already sold your stuff. Yeah. This stops that. It is such a, you know, a liberty-centric bill that... Um, in the Assembly, it was a voice vote, so you don't know who voted for it or against it. In the Senate, there were 10 Democrats that voted against this thing. <laughs> I mean, considering that, you know, supposedly they represent the populations that are always being abused by the police, mm -hmm. they should have been 100% behind this bill. It makes no sense why they were against it. But, you know, they'll be the first one to say, to, to bemoan the lack of bipartisan cooperation. <laughs> But then you get this bill that says, hey, there's a thing called the Constitution and there's a thing called due process. And, yeah, the cops shouldn't be able to sell your stuff before you're found guilty. Yeah. <laughs> and they, can, they still f uh, found a way to contort themselves into a pretzel to vote against it. I mean, it's, just, it's shocking. You know, you know, the Republicans, even if they aren't running anyone against those particular Democrats in their districts, they should still put literature out about, hey, do you know that John Urbanbach voted against this? Do you know that Lena Taylor voted against this? I mean, this is just such a... Even in the 10th Senate District where Patty Shatner just won, throw the literature out there. Let people know yeah. what these representatives are doing here in Madison. Yeah, I guess who you just elected 10th Senate District. You just elected someone who uh, wants to ignore an entire swath of the Constitution that directly affects everybody. And this is what comes back to me in things like the John Doe investigation 
where it's really clear that there were political motivations and that there were violations of the law and that people were really hurt because of the abuses of these law enforcement agents and these government officials. And yet you have Democrats because the people who are hurt are their political enemies. Um, they don't, it doesn't matter. The law doesn't matter. Well, this is legislation that says the law does matter. The Constitution does matter. And nobody is above the law, including police. Very important. Welfare reform, I think we've talked about it that a great deal. I'm not going to go in too, too much into that. But welfare reform is important because it is the notion that um, there is a dependency issue in this, in this uh, state, in this country. And we need to address that. And we can address that through the dignity of work. And the dignity of work with the left scoffing at it is still a principle that is still so critical and important to well, they did a, lot of a scoffing successful at society. They, they, they did a lot of scoffing at it during the hearings and said that it, you know, it is, there's no dignity in working a job where you can't pay uh, your bills. Like, yes. well, I mean, sometimes I can't pay my bills. I, I, would, I feel a lot better than, than if I were on on welfare. You know, there is always dignity in work. And like Chris, Senator Chris Gapica said, um, 97% of people who work full-time are not in poverty. And if you're not working a job, there is a 0% chance you could make it out of poverty and get on the career ladder. That's a very, very big issue that's tied into all of this. And uh, that's not to say, and Governor Walker has been clear on this, it's not to say that there aren't times when we are in difficult situations. People we know are in difficult situations. Uh, this is supposed to be a transition. It is supposed to be, as he likes to describe it and says it uh, uh, <laughs> over and over again, uh, that this should be, that welfare should be and these sorts of government programs should be a trampoline, not a um, not a hammock. Not a hammock. I was going to say a lazy boy recliner. Not a lazy boy recliner. On sale at Coles. Direct primary care is not complete yet, but the assembly passed it. This is uh, a free market solution to the mess that Obama left us. And Chris, I know you've done a lot of reporting on uh, direct primary care. Be interesting to see what the Senate does, if they can get the Senate uh, to go along with this. I think this has the potential to really uh, help a, a very difficult situation. in this. So state. just for, uh, you know, th this is one I'm really, really interested in. I love this bill. Uh, I love this concept is more what I should say. The, the, the bill itself uh, just defines what direct primary care is. It says it's not insurance because it's not. And uh, so it frees this arrangement uh, from a lot of the rules and red tape over insurance. Mm -hmm. some, of the, some, of it's, some of the rules and regulations are there for, for, for reasons because it's insurance. But uh, I think it's totally appropriate. And it also launches a pilot program in the medic, medic, in the MA program, medical assistance, uh, that will potentially transform that entire the entire system. It could save hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, so. Exactly. And a couple of the things, just briefly, that, as I said, a lot of good liberty limited government legislation, a lot of good liberty limited government legislation that did not make the cut once again. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the real reform drive of minimum markup. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness, what a liberty-killing, uh, competition-killing uh, law, the Unfair Sales Act, otherwise known as minimum markup. And it died again. At least it got a hearing this time, but it died again 
because we have the same special interests, the same status quo retailers that have built their business models on this government protectionist law. And it's just, you want to shake your head and say, when are we going, because this is all about doing what is best for the consumer, the reforms, and we still can't get there. Well, I promised Chris that we'd talk a little bit about the campaign season if we had time. So I think we still have a little bit of time left. And so let's start with uh, Representative Adam Jarko. Now, he ran for the Senate's 10th, uh, the 10th district seat, lost to Patty Shatner, and now he's done with the Assembly. Yeah, this is this is unfortunate. Um, uh, you know, there was, it was rumored he, he was thinking about leaving for, for a while. Uh, and then, you know, in this low turnout, uh, Senate election, uh, he he lost, but uh, he's he's really one of those guys who's a, a libertarian, small you know small L libertarian, uh, freedom first type of guy. Uh, Matt, I know you uh, are good good friends with with him, or very close, and and well, I mean, I don't know if you guys go get beers or anything like that, but you know, it, it's it's unfortunate that he's decided to to leave. It's he's a, a good strong voice for. Um, the smallest possible government in the assembly. So, yeah, uh, Adam Jarko is exactly what you just described. A guy who was elected because, uh, you know, first and foremost, he believes in the Constitution and Constitution as an attorney above prosecution. Hmm. And I think that that is a sentiment that has been lost so much in this state. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about someone who has represented conservative values and has put conservative values before cronyism and special interest and all of those sorts of things, that is a loss. Uh, we'll see what uh, his successor will bring, and we'll see what happens uh, in that particular district moving forward. And, uh, Chris, you also want to talk a little bit about some of the hypocrisy that's going on with the uh, Supreme Court race? Yeah, I mean, isn't it? It's politics. <laughs> hypocrisy is just kind of baked into the cake. But, you know, we saw this uh, story from the Wisconsin State Journal last week that, that we, you know, we put on uh, our Facebook page just to let people know um, that the liberal judge running for Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, uh, the liberal is uh, Rebecca Dallet, the conservative is Michael Skrennick. Uh Rebecca Dallet had this self-imposed pledge to you know, recuse herself if there was any, you know, even a trace of, uh, of conflict of interest. And as it turns out, she's been hearing cases involving attorneys from her husband's law firm, hmm. despite that pledge. And, you know, this goes back several years. She also has heard a number of cases from uh, ha lots of campaign donors to her. I mean, you know, I think, okay, for one, there's a limited pool of lawyers. Most fall on one side of the political divide or the other. Um, it's really... I think impossible to say I'm going to recuse myself anytime I ever met the lawyer that was that was you know that's a, involved in a case in front of me if I'm a judge. So I mean that's kind of untenable. Well, but then but you know to say to go out and say I'm going to recuse myself in every instance where there's a, a you know a hint of conflict of interest, and then to, just to go back on that that that's 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 the well, hypocrisy. Well, these are really bad ones too. I they mean, pretty bad. I mean it really undermines the whole concept of fairness in our court system where. I mean, literally, the lawyer could could say to his client, "Don't worry about this one. My wife's hearing the case." 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's where you have the possibility. And, I mean, I would certainly have recused myself in cases like that. I'm no judge, but, I mean, you know, it's, it's her well, husband's how would you law like to firm. Be the, yeah, how would you like to be the lawyer up against this where, you know, Dalit is arguing in front of Dalit? Right. <laughs> no, this is, I mean, this is... This, the, Dalit be Dalit. It's Kramer be Kramer. <laughs> This is a. I, I think this is gonna get this race is gonna get nasty because there's push polls out there. I'm hearing by the ones I've heard about are by Dalit that um, just are pretty ugly against Skrennick, and you know it turns into an arms race uh, when when you have these sorts of things. And with with Dalit, there's opportunities that are publicized in the media. Maybe we can talk about them sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities. All right. Well, uh, that, I think, puts the ribbon on another MacIver Report, Wisconsin This Week podcast. As always, don't forget to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and or Google Play. Please do follow us on Twitter. We're now on, the, on Twitter at, at MacIver Report is our Twitter handle. Uh, tweet at us. Let us know your thoughts, your show ideas. If you think this show was terrible, you can let us know that, too. Uh, and most importantly, share us with your family and friends. That's right, because sharing is caring. Well, my MacGyver pals, that closes the books on yet another MacGyver Report where you're extremely charming and good-looking. An enlightened MacGyver team brings you the week's biggest stories and our exacting insight. We'll be back next Tuesday, don't you fear, with what we promise will be a life-changing podcast experience, or at least a cure for your insomnia. See you next week. <laughs>